Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the second special episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, I think, the final installment of Perkin Warbeck. It's the conspirators in England, so we're not actually Ooh. following Perkin today. Oh, we're looking okay. what's happening in England at the same time. Okay. It was a, a dirty great chunk out of the Perkin one that I thought would just be, <laughs> it would be too much. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, before I start the subject of this special episode, I've done some digging into something we were confused about in the Perkin episode. Okay. <laughs> Because I said that the clergy were turning against Henry because some of them now had to stand trial in civil courts. Yes. And might be branded with an M for murderer. Yes. It was, it's on the thumb, by the way. Really? I thought it would uh, be on, like, the forehead. Yes. No, I think you're muddling it up with... Um... The scarlet letter. Sorry, we're um, going to be hearing my cat. I, I don't have an ability to lock him out and he just keeps coming back. That's no, right. I was thinking of how, didn't they didn't they brand adulteresses with the letter A on their forehead at some I point in somewhere? Perhaps they were just being kinder to the clergy. I don't oh. know. We thought it was odd that murder didn't automatically incur the death penalty. Yes. I think this branding was just for the clergy. I think if you were a commoner garden person... Things were a bit more serious. But I wondered if there was such a thing as justifiable homicide. Oh. And there is, sort of. Okay. Now, I found information about Henry VI's day, and I've no reason to think it changed before the time that we're looking at. A murder was actually divided into three categories. There was justifiable killing, and that covered the killing of outlaws and those who were caught in the act of a crime. Okay. There was pardonable killing. And that covered accidents, killing by the insane, and self-defence. Although the self-defence part was very circumscribed, and I found this quote from one of Henry VI's judges in 1454. Quote, If a man assaults you in order to beat you, it is not lawful for you to say you want to kill him and to endanger his life and limb. But if the case is such that he has you at such advantage that he intends to kill you as you seek to flee and he is swifter than you, and pursues you, so that you are unable to escape, or if you are on the ground and under him, or if he chases you to a wall or hedge or dike, so that you cannot escape, then it is lawful for you to say that if he won't desist, you want to slay him to save your own life, and thus you may menace him for such special cause. So it's very specific. You have to be actually at the point of, of death. death, effectively before you can say to him, would you mind desisting? Otherwise, I think I want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking, because Canada has something like that, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's like for like, so you can only use a certain amount of force to protect yourself. So if he's using his fists, you can't use a weapon, that kind of thing. Mm. So it sounds similar. Well, that was the ideal, but in fact, juries tended to acquit people who pleaded self-defence, even when it was not quite so much of a last resort. Okay. And the third type was all other killings were capital offences, although juries often acquitted people whose crimes fitted what we, we today would call manslaughter. But interestingly, only 36% of crimes which were investigated went to court, and of those, only 17 resulted in conviction. Oh, so you had an easier time getting off? But there were, yes, there were several reasons for this, apparently. It was partly because if you were guilty, you knew you'd be hanged. 
Okay. So you, you wouldn't stay around for the trial. You'd Oh, uh, you'd be gone. Yes, you'd go to another town, you'd change your name. Right. Which we found through Perkin. It's easy to change your name. It's easy, yes. <laughs> but also, local juries knew that coroners were subject to corruption and so were suspicious of testimonies that smacked of malevolence or malice. Okay. So they wouldn't convict then. And also, juries were local, so they probably knew more about the case than the coroner did, so they might know if right. there were mitigating circumstances. Right. And the difference between manslaughter and murder didn't arrive until the late 16th century. Oh. So that's all I found out. I thought we might do an episode on crime and punishment at some point. Yes, that would be fascinating. So I got that information from the very wonderful Medieval Death Trip podcast, which I I recommend (laughs) heartily. (laughs) Anyway, on with the conspirators. In Perkins' episode, I didn't mention those back in England who supported them in their different ways, because the episodes following Perkin were long enough. And to bring in the English dimension too, which has just left us with a quagmire of names. So I've kept all that part for a special episode. Okay. And we'll be looking at why people turned away from Henry and towards Perkin, who they were, and what Henry did about them. And we'll also be looking at a wonderfully bizarre attempt to assassinate the king. I don't remember an attempt to assassinate. Did I miss that? I think there were were a few, actually, but this one is one of the bizarrer ones. Okay. (laughs) I think there's assassination attempts on all kings, aren't they? I mean, there was loads against Queen Victoria. Yes. From the spring of 1493, letters from Perkin and his supporters, mainly from his supporters, as we discovered, were winging their way across the channel. So people had to decide, A, whether they believed the story, B, whether this was a trick, C, whose side they were on, and D, what they had to lose. And those who did decide to side decide to side those who did decide to side with Perkin, why did they do it? Well, some had nothing to lose. They were outlaws or people hiding in sanctuary, or people who'd been attainted. Others were people who felt, rightly or wrongly, that they hadn't been sufficiently rewarded by Henry. And that would cover Sir William Stanley, mm-hmm. who, while being one of the wealthiest men in the country, still felt that he hadn't been given enough. And others were what Virgil described as foolish dreamers and risk-takers. But mainly, they were just ardent Yorkists. Does Polydor Virgil say anything complimentary about anybody? I always think that everything he says ought to have so there after it. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. I have yet to come across anything from him that isn't nasty. Hmm, bitchy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like he is a permanently miserable person and he's going to let everybody know just how miserable he is with every statement. Well, we've got him in the box, so we will find out when we, when we take his name out. <laughs> I don't want him. <laughs> Someone's got to have him. <laughs> At the core of the conspiracy were people who'd been in Edward's court and they owed loyalty to the House of York, some by marriage, some had been given land or titles by the Yorkist kings. And there were diplomats, Richards, Esquire of the Bodies, servants. Got Edward's bowmaker as one of them, the clerk of his jewel house. And the letters from Perkin and his supporters seemed almost like, you know that thing in, you get in films? Is it called Sleepers? Where people are activated by a phone call. And suddenly they think they so. think, must kill the president. Yeah, spies. Yeah. Hmm. And then suddenly, yeah, from just having accepted what had happened, these people have a choice. And lots of people leapt at the chance, mm. although plenty of plenty of people left it well alone. 
So let's look at a few people who took up the challenge. Well, there's people like Edward Skelton, gentleman of Carlisle, and he's not the Edward Skelton we'll be doing an episode about. Different one. The one we're doing is the one who complained about Perkins' organ playing. Oh, right. And said it was the howling of an old sow or something. <laughs> now, this one had already fought for Lambert Simnel at Stoke and had then fled for the, to the court of Burgundy. Once Perkin turned up, Skelton went backwards and forwards between Malines, and that's um, Auntie Margaret's place, and England, drumming up support. His family held lands by grant of Rich III, and he had been conspiring against Henry since he became king. Did Henry take away those lands? Is that why he was I would, conspiring? I would have thought so. Okay. I mean, at least he's not hypocritical. He was consp- conspiring straight from, <laughs> straight from the beginning. <laughs> I'm not pretending. <laughs> in Perkins' intimate circle in Flanders were Freon, Ward and Taylor. We've come across Taylor on many occasions. And they'd all been Edward's servants. And there was Anthony de la Force. You don't have to remember these names. I'm just saying these are the sort of people that, per- that were attracted to Perkin. Anthony de la Force was the son of a diplomat who'd been Edward's negotiator in Spain. George Neville had been an esquire to the body of Richard III. Sir Thomas Tyrrell, who's the cousin of the more famous James Tyrrell, had been a chamber servant of both Edward and Richard. I wish we knew if their loyalty was because they were still loyal to the Yorkists or if because they were excluded from Henry's court. I think that they, um, they'd all been somebody. And now they'd they weren't. They'd all been contenders. Yeah, and now they weren't anymore. Okay. I mean, they, I'm sure they must have had very noble and honourable reasons for Oh, yes, very honourable. <laughs> but also... They'd lost stuff. And people like having stuff, don't they? (laughs) People love having stuff. (laughs) Surprisingly, many of the people who heard the call and went to follow Perkin were yeomen and labourers, and they came from all over England. And some even headed off to Malines, leaving their wives and children. I wondered what Auntie Margaret thought of this invasion of peasants (laughs) to her court. (laughs) Hello, we've come to help. It's not very dirty. (laughs) Oh, oh, nice. You, You brought a pitchfork helpful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Virgil suspected that they'd been sent by their lords who preferred to stay at home and hedge their bets. <laughs> so there. <laughs> I'm not going to come, but I'll send somebody who's useless. Yes. But but it looks like a body, so maybe that'll be helpful when you go mm. to war. It, it looks like you have many people. Yes, presumably these are all the people who got killed on the beach at yeah. Teal. Mm, waiting for their free beer. Fodder. Anyway, what did all these people do? It was hard to know for certain, as so few indictments survive. But they sent money to Flanders, and they used secret signs and codes and secret handshakes, like squeezing the thumb. (laughs) (laughs) And they used tokens, such as bent ducats, pairs of gloves, holy pictures, and silver tip laces, in other words. Aglets. Aglets again. Ooh, which... I wanted to make a mention of this. Uh, I had a person who listens locally, so she just asked me verbally, why were aglets so common? And then I started thinking, well, there were no buttons. Everybody got laced in. And every lace Mm. for your pants, your shirt, your coat, your jacket, putting on your sleeves, all of those were laces. So everything needed to be done with an aglet so that the string or the lace wouldn't fall apart. So they Mm. were very common. Yeah. So nobody would notice if you cut off a couple and and handed them to somebody. Yeah, they were regularly lost, so it would be something that nobody would notice. 
It, it was very interesting once I started going, well, why would they just do that? And then realizing, actually watching them put together somebody in a Tudor outfit and watching as somebody was lacing them on. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps we have to do a special episode on aglets as well. Letters were written in tiny characters and then folded so small that they could be hidden in the palm of the hand and passed surreptitiously in a handshake. Mm. Mm. This is starting to sound like Boy Scouts playing. Yeah, but a little more dangerous mm-hmm. than that, isn't it? Yes. But I should, I should imagine up to the point where you are hanged, it's probably quite fun, isn't it? <laughs> All of a sudden, it's not fun anymore. <laughs> I don't want to play. <laughs> Most plotters of the early 1490s kept what was called a foot in two shoes, working for Perkin but still performing their functions for Henry. Which was sensible until they could find out more about this boy across the water who suddenly announced that he was Richard of York and also meant that they were able to see how Henry was planning to retaliate. Because retaliate he did. Mm -hmm. But there was no obvious leader in England to join all these groups together, so they existed in discrete cells dotted around the country without much in the way of communication. What they needed was, dare I say it, a Margaret Beaufort to tie them all together. (laughs) One person who's obsessed. <laughs> yes. But was this all cleverness on their part? Were they really a tight network of groups across the country who disguised their links so cunningly that we cannot even see them today? Well, no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely. The illegal record shows small inward-looking clusters, apparently unaware of what other groups are up to. So like the cells that they talk yeah. about now. Which is sort of inevitable because... You don't really want to talk to strangers about no. your possible treason. Yes. In 1494, a London cell made and fabricated various bills and writings, rhymes and ballads concerning seditions and treacheries and uprising against the king as other nobles of his council. And they pinned these up on the door of St. Benedict's in Grace Church Street. And that appears to be their sole contribution to the war effort. <laughs> Propaganda. Writing rhymes and sticking them to church doors may seem a rather childish way of going about subversion to us, but in fact, that was how several nursery rhymes first appeared. Oh. And I thought, yeah, I thought we'd do a special episode. I lots of special episodes. Yeah. <laughs> special episode on subversive rhymes. Okay, but it also we- couldn't be considered too... I don't know, you can't really dismiss it, because didn't Martin Luther nail his treatise up on a church door? Mm. Yeah, he did. So that was a common way of getting information out there. Yeah. Oh, apart from, um, I seem to remember in Jasper Tudor's episode, they cut the heads off a load of dogs and stuck the rhymes in the dog's mouth, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, that was so gross. Yes. Well, these people just stuck it to the door. So Thank you. That's, that's kind yes. of <laughs> The writers of the rhymes were tracked down, but managed to flee to the sanctuary of St. Martin the Grand. How do you track down somebody who wrote a rhyme? Really? I should imagine that... It was probably informers, isn't it? Oh, okay. Mm, I would have thought so. Yeah, because you're not going to recognise the handwriting or anything like that, are you? And a few days later, they were dragged out of sanctuary and later hanged, apart from one who was both hanged and beheaded. Right, because Henry had said sanctuary was for everything but treason. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. It's amazing what could be treason. Yes, treason's a very handy thing to hang a lot of things onto, including yeah. people. Sadly. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Sorry. That's... <laughs> oh, that's yeah, I only realised where that was going halfway through the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I think the reason for the extra punishment for the poor bloke that was hanged and beheaded was because he was Henry's trusted servant. And Henry probably felt betrayed. Yes. As indeed he had been. Another cell was formed by Clifford and Lord Fitzwater. And Fitzwater was Henry's steward of the household and had been high steward at his coronation. But he had also been Edward's esquire of the body. And he once, once warned Edward privately that he was about to be assassinated. I sort of imagine him a bit like a sort of Jeeves character going over, very, very surreptitiously going over and saying, excuse me, sir, would you lean a little to the left? You're about to be assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> and the arrow going, ka-choom, past his head. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Carry on. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Uh, Fitzwater now agreed to get an armed force together, of 500 men arrayed for war as soon as Perkins set foot on English soil. That did never happen. <laughs> Clifford was to prove a key figure in the English conspiracy. He'd been an ardent Yorkist before Bosworth, and after it he became Henry's Chamberlain of Berwick, and was given some lands that Lovell had forfeited. Lands just seemed to be... Everywhere, here you go. Yeah, they just... Be, yeah. Right, I'm taking it from you, and you can have it. No, you give that back to him, and he can have that. And... Yeah. At Stoke, he fought for the king against the Yorkist rebels and was knighted on the battlefield. He carried the canopy of Elizabeth of York's litter at the coronation, and he was one of Henry's envoys to Brittany. But he was, by all accounts, he was a pretty difficult character. He once refused to get on a ship because he said it was too small for his person. And I don't think that means that he's a great fat lump. I was going to say, how big was he? (laughs) I think it just means... Prestigious. I'm too prestigious for that. My ego is too big for that. Yes. (laughs) He also seems to be quite gossipy. Passing on the the rumour that was current at the time to the Milanese ambassador that this Duke of York, so we're back with Perkin, is not the son of King Edward, but is the son of the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy and the Bishop of Lambray. Oh, he was the one that said that. Mm. If Henry Mm. didn't get you, Margaret was going to. Yes. In the spring of 1493, Clifford was in conversation with another man about Perkin. And this man was Sir William Stanley. And Stanley was Henry's chamberlain, the man that controlled the appointments to the household officers and ceremonial state, and he had access to the king in his private apartments. Wasn't he also his uncle-in-law or something? Yep. He was as close to Henry as it was possible to be. Would it be step-uncle? Yeah, because his mother got remarried and that was his stepfather's brother. brother. So step-uncle. Yes. <laughs> William had won Bosworth for Henry in that he turned up the last minute. So surely he was as trustworthy as any man could be. But he had always been a Yorkist and he had been charged with treason by Henry VI and knighted by Edward IV. But he'd also been steward of the household of Bloodlow of Edward, Prince of Wales. And that's the one that briefly became Edward V. Because he was related to Henry VII by marriage, he expected to reap particular favours by this tie. But Henry didn't rule in that way. He didn't want to encourage factionalism. Okay. Uh, Stanley couldn't complain, really. I mean, he was Constable of Carnarvon, Justice of North Wales and Lord Chamberlain. He had estates in North Wales and Cheshire. He was one of the wealthiest men in England. So what was his problem? I don't know. I mean, he just didn't think he'd been given enough. My God. I suppose he, he he was only a sir. He wasn't a duke <laughs> or an earl. I think that perhaps might have got to him. Virgil felt Henry picked up on Stanley's resentment and was in turn resentful of it. 
So maybe that's why he was only a sir, because Henry just thought, I've given you all this stuff. Yeah. Just, be, just be grateful. Yeah. Right, another cell was headed by John Kendall, who was prior of the Order of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem in England. I've never heard of that order. It's one of the sort of Knights Hospitaller. Oh, okay. Ones. I've heard of them. Yeah. He was described as part rover, part soldier, part huckster. He raised money for his order by selling indulgences, printed by Caxton, for a national crusade to rescue the island of Rhodes from the Turks. And he tried to relieve the Turkish siege of the island by shipping oil and wine. Is that what you need if you're being besieged? <laughs> I don't Maybe know. you do need the wine. I don't know. <laughs> Take your mind off it. But... And he was also a sort of errant ambassador for both the Pope and Henry VII. Oh. And it was Kendall's cell. It sounds like a very interesting character. It was Kendall's cell who was responsible for one of the most ludicrous assassination attempts I've ever come across. I mean, he could teach the CIA a thing or two about crazy assassination schemes. Much of this activity was exposed when one of his agents, Bernard de Vignol, made a confession in 1496 in Rouen. So now we will follow the story of the attempted assassination of Henry VII. Bernard's testimony involved a plot to kill Henry, his children, his mother, <gasps> and <laughs> I thought that would shock oh you. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Leave and anyone on. else who was close to him. The plotters employed the services of an astrologer, someone able not only to mix ointments but to tell you the best time to apply them. And when Kendall was in Rome in 1492, there's a lot happens in 1492, doesn't it? He was sent to find such a man and came across a Spaniard called Radigo who said he couldn't do it, but pointed Kendall in the direction of Master John Dison, who said he could. That's got to be a very awkward position to be in. I want you to kill the king. Uh, I can't. No, 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 don't kill me. Don't kill <laughs> me. I, I know somebody who can help you. <laughs> yes, I think he was very quick to, to say, is that just over there? Just yeah, over there. Yeah, Leave yeah, me alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be fine the right person. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. Hmm. In order to prove his credentials, Dison arranged for the murder probably with counterfeit sugar, of a servant of Sem, brother of Bajazet. Oh, yes, for the Ottoman succession. Yes, the emperor of the Turks. Who was yes. Then, and the, his brother was then in Rome in papal custody. And I think it'd be good to do an episode on Sem because he... I've actually put that on our Patreon list mm. for the Ottoman but, succession because it was so convoluted and involved the Pope. Yes, it did. Mm. Yeah. So wait, they killed one of... They killed one of the... Ottoman emperor's brother's, brother's servants. servants. Why would they pick? I don't know why they singled him out. <laughs> the poor man. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the money that Kendall offered wasn't enough, so the plan wasn't carried out in the end. But yes, it did seem a little odd, you know. Usually people, unfortunately, use a dog or something if they're going to oh, show yeah. that they can poison, don't they? But he, he obviously said, no, I can do it, can do it. I tell you what, I'll kill him. Yeah. 
Now, eventually, according to his confession, Bernard was sent to nudge Dison along, as well as to silence Rodrigo, and that was the first astrologer, Uh because he was gabbing about the plot. Of course he was! And by silence, I presume they mean... Murder. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of collateral damage in this attempt to kill the king, isn't there? Yeah. Scattergun effect. Yeah. (laughs) I'll just take out everybody except the one person you're trying for. (laughs) Dison said that he would come back to England with Bernard in the disguise of a friar in case he was recognised, which implies that he was either quite a well-known astrologer or a delusional one. And I strongly suspect the latter. Delusional. He was missing two teeth. So what, I love this because there's so much detail. He's missing two teeth, so he said he would get false ones made of ivory. Okay. And just to be on the safe side, he would come via St. James of Compostela as if he were a pilgrim. That's quite a long way round from Rome mm-hmm. to England via Spain. What, what year was this? Do we have... 1492, I think we're still in. Okay, and so. in the end, Dison, said, Dison decided to stay in Rome anyway, because <laughs> he was too short of cash to travel. <laughs> what? So all his stuff gets built up and built up and built up, and nothing happens. I don't know, maybe he spent all the money on his ivory teeth. But he did give Bernard a little wooden box containing ointment. This ointment, he told him, should be spread along and across any doors through which the king would pass. What? Quote, and if it were done, it would cause the persons who bore the greatest love for the king to murder him. So someone walking up to the door as Henry's greatest friend would emerge on the other side, baying for his blood. Oh, Clever stuff. Wow. Mm. That is ridiculous. <laughs> He's not even, so there's no poison. There's no convincing anybody. There's no conspiracy. You're just going to rub this ointment on a doorway and people yep. walk through it like it's magic, and all of a sudden they're evil against the king? Yep. Who yep, in the right mind would believe that? Well, Bernard, at this point, wanted out. Oh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure whether he was panicked by the enormity of what they were planning to do, or whether he just thought it was plain stupid. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Which it obviously was. Back at his lodgings, he opened the box and found in it some evil-smelling gunge, and he just threw the lot down the loo. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I've got to ask, do we know how much was spent on this goop? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. They obviously went there with enough money to to pay someone to kill the king. Oh, my goodness. Well, no, not quite enough money to pay someone to kill the king. (laughs) Just enough to buy him some teeth. (laughs) But what was poor Bernard to do now? He'd been sent there to get the stuff. And to kill Rodrigo, but we don't hear what happened to that. I don't know whether he did kill him or not. We'll go with half. <laughs> mm. He killed Rodrigo. He's got the stuff. He threw it down. A poop. Yeah. Well, Kendall, back in England, will be waiting for the killing the king ointment. <laughs> that just sounds so And Kendall, comedic. while all this was going on, he was still Henry's trusted servant, so he would have access to the doors <gasps> that Henry was likely to walk through. Oh, my goodness. And Henry's mother. No, no. So Bernard thought on his feet. Kendall didn't know what this stuff looked like. So Bernard bought another box from the apothecary. He obviously threw the box down as well and filled it with earth, water, mercury and soot until it was exactly the same colour as the stuff he had been previously given. And probably just as effective. (laughs) Well, given that Kendall had never seen the stuff and didn't know what to expect, I don't know why he spent so much time making sure it was exactly the right colour. Good point. But anyway... 
When Bernard eventually got back to England, he handed Kendall the box. At least he tried to, but Kendall wouldn't touch it. Wait, was Kendall the one that had the coats that reversed? Oh, I think he was, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Oh, I didn't put okay. I didn't put the name together. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so he's the clever one. <laughs> well, Bernard told him that Dizon had said, quote, that it was very dangerous to touch if you wanted to do something bad with it, and he would be in great danger if it stayed twenty two hours in the house. Well, wait a second. Everybody who would have it would want to do something bad with it. I can't think what else you'd do with it. No. Well, Kendall told him to throw it away as far away from the house <laughs> as possible. <laughs> so he did, he wasted his time remaking it. <laughs> I think he buried it, even though he knew that he made the stuff and he knew it, it didn't have dangerous magical properties. It did have mercury in it, though, so perhaps burying it was pretty sensible. <laughs> Everything had mercury in it. Yeah, what did that's they, true. Was that what they called quicksilver? I'm trying to remember. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they never used the stuff anyway, after all that. <laughs> so three or four weeks later, when Bernard was ill, Kendall had come to his bedside and offered him a horse and money if he'd leave England. And he replied that he was too weak. And the sickness lasted for six months. Oh. I don't know, maybe it's mercury, mercury poisoning. Mercury poisoning, yeah. That about. Can you recover but, from mercury poisoning? Poison. Not sure. I have no idea. When the Grand Prior kept trying to persuade Bernard to go overseas, as though he was fearing he might be arrested and under interrogation incriminate himself, Bernard might incriminate himself and his friends. And he was delighted when Bernard asked for leave to return to France. Although, of course, Bernard was arrested and did incriminate himself and his friends. <laughs> which is just as well, since that's how we know all about it. <laughs> and that was the end of the grand plan to assassinate the king. Wow. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> yes, it was an awful lot of effort for absolutely no return. <laughs> you know what? If we ever sell merchandise, one of them is going to be a box with goop in it that says, yes. if you have evil intent, do not keep this for 22 hours and see if anybody buys it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like I could see if you made a poison that you'd put on like, uh, oof, what was it? Elizabeth had some one of her saddles poisoned. Yeah, right. Yeah, and clothing mm. could be impregnated. Well, that counterfeit sugar that they started with would have been made, made a lot more sense. Yeah, then could be smeared on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. So anyway, amazingly, Henry survived that particular attempt. Oh, really? And probably <laughs> knew nothing about it. <laughs> That's so dumb. He did get a copy of the uh, confession. Because yes, he's got his. He's got. He signed it on the back to say that he had a copy. He must have had a good laugh about it. I should <laughs> think. Wow. Right, Henry Spies. Henry's spy system was helped by a system of posts placed along the roads. In 1497, his postal service ensured that letters could reach Woodstock from Devon in a day. Okay, so we're talking about like buildings of people, not like wooden posts. <laughs> I think we're talking about horses, probably. Right. So you'd, you'd stop and get fresh horses. Right. So that, um, like a relay you, system. You could ride all day, yeah. His account book is full of payees with names such as two men that came from Ireland, to a black friar, a stranger, to a spy that dwelleth in the West Country, <laughs> and to a fellow with a beard, brackets, a spy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Henry also sent servants who were on his payroll into the houses of people he suspected, since people don't notice them and are happy to sing anything in front of them. Yeah. And he also had trumpeters as spies. Francis Bacon called these his flies and familiars. I like Francis Bacon. To these people, Henry added others who passed on information as part of their daily work. The top officers at Calais had a separate budget for spying, and they would pass on the names of the rebels and then try to turn those people's servants against them, promising them a pardon from the king and that they would be put on the king's payroll. Hmm. So they'd be paid twice. You'd be paid by your, your master and by the king. Knowing Henry's dislike of spending money, keeping this many spies on his payroll shows how seriously he took the threat of Perkin, yes. whatever he might have said to the contrary. Yes. Professional diplomats had a brief to spy, and if a, if a country sent over an ambassador, Henry would send back two, according to Comine. He was the, the Flemish chronicler. Okay. Envoys were encouraged to bring up the subject to Perkin and then tell them that as far as that business is concerned, the king cares nothing about it and it is the least of his worries. Lies. <laughs> yes, that's why he sent them there in the first place. <laughs> he began spying on Perkin and his supporters pretty much as soon as he heard of them. But, according to Virgil, what really jump-started him was Robert Clifford's departure for Flanders. Henry was worried that this would lead to a hemorrhaging of all the nobility of the country. And his two-pronged attack was to send out scouts to find out who Perkin really was and to get into Perkin's household at Moline and turn everyone against him. And this latter one was said by Perkin to show that Henry really believed he was the Duke of York. Otherwise, why would he need to do that? Mm -hmm. Lovely circular thinking. Yes. Henry crushes the uprising before it starts. In 1494... Henry arrested most of the prominent churchmen who had supported Perkin and a number of the lay people, including Lord Fitzwater and Thomas Astwood, whom we've met before attempting to break Perkin and Edward Plantagenet out of the tower. Yes. He, he's the, oh, I've got a special friend. Oh, that still makes me cringe, like that poor mm. kid. Mm. I know he was an adult by then, but it still seems like he was... He wasn't really, though, was no. he? Bless him. <laughs> the accusations for which one could be tainted with treason grew wider. Just having links with Flanders or having any links at all with someone who was already under suspicion was enough to put you under suspicion yourself. Oh no. We're back in the Stalinist court, I think. Yes. He seems to have Stalinist tendencies even before Empson and Dudley come along. Yeah. It wasn't hard for Henry to infiltrate Perkins' court because Perkin was so grateful for any supporters he could get that he accepted anyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, even if they'd recently been in Henry's pay and possibly still were. And Molinet, another Flemish chronicler, told the story of the infiltration of Perkins' court in 1494. Three grand personnages d'Angleterre turned up one day at Malines, where Perkin then was. They sought refuge there because Henry had banished them for supporting Perkin. Perkin received them lovingly and made them his chief counsellors. So much so that nothing was done openly or covertly that did not pass through their hands. Oh, lovely. Mm. And these people worked tirelessly to turn the nobles of England over to Perkin's side. About 40 of them, including Henry's great chamberlain, Sir William Stanley. And as proof of their intent, the nobles sent them their seals. Whereupon these three, three men up sticks and headed back over the channels with the seals in their pockets. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Perkin had been completely outmaneuvered here, and apparently what upset him was that they didn't even say goodbye. And he thought that was he thought that was very rude. 
<laughs> Can you imagine how horrible things would have gone in England if he had been he had been successful? He would be very much a puppet. It would be more like Henry the Sixth again, like just everybody else pulling the strings and doing whatever they wanted. Mm. One of these people was Robert Clifford. He was the one who was too big for the boat. Mm. Clifford is an interesting character. Had he been a spy right from the get-go? Did he set up Stanley and Fitzwater? Was he sent by Henry to entrap them? Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) (laughs) If that's the case, then Henry must have had his doubts about Stanley right from the start. And if he hadn't been a spy, Clifford this is, he must have had contacts back in England who could assure him that his reception would be favourable. I mean, he wouldn't have come back on the off chance he'd have been forgiven. But I, mean, I suppose having a pocket full of seals probably uh, made it much easier to forgive him. Mm-hmm. When Clifford arrived back in England, he was arrested and rewarded pretty much at the same time, which implies that the arrest was just Fate. for show. Yeah. Mm. He was pardoned almost as soon as he stepped foot on English soil, so his path must have been cleared beforehand. And Reginald Bray gave him £500 for services rendered. That's a lot of money. Hmm. Virgil said that Clifford had been worked on with promises of a pardon and of high rewards, and so he turned. So he th- he seemed to think that he had originally been Perkinite. Rebel, but, then... but it was in Virgil's interest to make those who sided with Perkin appear to be greedy people whose allegiance could be bought by the highest bidder. So he could have been turned back? Is that what he's saying? No, whoever had the most money would be own this man. I think he's saying that he had originally sided with Perkin, but he'd been bought. So these people, you know, they're not really with Perkin if you can buy them, are they? Ah, I see. Clifford gave Henry names, many of them working inside the Henry's court, and one of which, of course, was Sir William Stanley. Well, did Henry already know about Stanley? Apparently he was shaken by the news, but some said later that just as... This sounds like... I bet it was Virgil. It sounds like him. Just as Stanley was very good at pretending loyalty, so Henry was very good at pretending belief in that loyalty. Hmm. And I think he'd have enjoyed watching Stanley thinking that he was tricking the king. Right. He seems to be that kind of a person. Schadenfreude? That's the word? Schadenfreude. Stanley was apparently waiting for Clifford's word before he would commit himself to act. And Clifford's word obviously never came. So why not? I mean, did Clifford just leave it too late? He'd been planning to send word, but by the time it got to the point where Stanley might be of use to Clifford, Clifford was already heading home. Or if Clifford had always been a spy, was it better to have Stanley at court waiting? He'd already condemned himself in word, if not in action. He'd he'd only said that if Perkin were the son of Edward IV, he wouldn't take up arms against him. But that was enough. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't seem a lot, does it, to say, well, if he's got a greater right to the throne, uh, it is still treason, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but yeah. you just basically said you wouldn't defend the king that you've sworn loyalty to. Mm. Yeah. But still, you'd think because he was related that he would have got, I don't know. Unless Henry just decided he was the one to make an example of that I'll take out anybody even though they're that close to my family. I think that's it. He was showing not even family ties will will save you. Ouch. Maybe Henry got quite a kick out of thinking of Stanley just waiting for the word to act. And if Clifford was working for Henry... It was never coming. 
<laughs> We're not going to say the word. I bet they had a really good laugh about it. <laughs> and Stanley even sat on commissions that indicted the writers of the subversive rhymes. So I'm wondering, did it amuse Henry to put him on these commissions oh. so that Stanley's loyalties would be torn? Right. But all that speculation, since we don't know Clifford's no. real loyalty. Henry moved his court to the Tower of London, and he did this so that anyone who was called to the Tower would think nothing of it. They oh, would right. just think they were coming for a little chat with the king, but they could suddenly find themselves being bundled off into a cell if Henry thought it was necessary. Mm-hmm. So many other rebels were brought before Henry, but if they started by protesting their innocence, he only had to produce the seal that they'd sent to Flanders. Oops. Yeah, and this various rebels were condemned to die. Some tried to make a run for it to Flanders, but were caught and hanged on the coast. It'd be interesting to know, and we will know when we do Thomas Stanley's episode, what he thought of all this. His stepson had just killed his brother. Yeah. He may have been smart and just not said anything, though. We may not have that answer. Because I don't know if if he just killed my brother, I'm not sure I would be willing to put in writing what I thought of that. No. He might have thought, fair enough. Yeah. Treason is treason. Astwood was reprieved. He was very young. Lord Fitzwater was condemned to life imprisonment in a castle in France. You think, why wasn't he executed? He was one of the top ones, but... I think there must some deal must have gone on somewhere. But he was beheaded later when he tried to escape. And as soon as you hear that, now we know about Empson. Yep. <laughs> so here. Tried to escape, eh? Yeah. Let's first get all your money by mm-hmm. humiliating you. And then when you're no longer useful, let's let's make you escape so we have a reason just to get rid of you. Yep. The Breton merchant, if you remember him, Pregant Maino or Mino. Yes. who had taken Perkin to Ireland. Although his ships were chased down and he was arrested, he was then released and he did pretty well, including being given a grant of £300 and being made denizen of England, which is a privilege only granted to a few people each year. Most of those were considerably higher standing than Mr. Mino. I wonder if he was a spy. Or whether he'd been turned. He'd be quite useful. And Clifford continued to be rewarded and, in fact, he became an important part of Henry's regime. The clergy rebels were able to claim their privilege and so were fined and not executed. And it's interesting to see how this shows up in historical documents. Because William Worsley, the Dean of St Paul's, seems to have had very pleasant life up to then, judging by his account rolls. Mm-hmm. There are payments for claret, malmsey and beer, as well as other examples of the pleasures of life. Or, or he was just a high-functioning alcoholic, I'm not sure. <laughs> But in 1495 to 6, this all came to a halt. His alcohol bill went from £22, 7 shillings and 4 pence halfpenny to under £3. I presume this is annual, not weekly. (laughs) Payments were shown to Reginald Bray and Thomas Lovell. They were the more benign predecessors of Dudley and Empson. Yes. He was also paying £135 to the keeper of Henry's privy purse. And he made several journeys by boat to Sheen, presumably to have a little talk with Henry. Mm-hmm. And there are also payments for food in the Tower of London for himself and his servant for 16 weeks and for bribes for members of the King's Council Learned in Law. Ah. Uh. And next year, this is all repeated, except that now there are medical expenses too, as poor Worsley appears to be breaking under the strain. Yeah. So it's fascinating to be able to get glimpses of how politics of the country actually 
shows itself in someone's life. Yes. He can't afford Mumsy anymore. <laughs> no, he's giving it all to probably Empson and Dudley. Hmm. People still continue to write verses and pin them up in public places. As Virgil put it, these words, quote, soon stuck in their windpipes, unquote. But Henry hanged anyone who continued to speak in favour of Perkin Warbeck. So after a while, people stopped speaking in favour of Perkin Warbeck. I would too. And Henry had won. The end. The end. <laughs> wow, how convoluted was that? Well, it's spying. I mean, it's John le Carre's stuff, isn't it? Which yeah. Is the spy who came over from Flanders. It should be interesting to write a John le Carre type book about, about this, this era. I don't want to do it myself, but I'm throwing it out there for anybody who does. <laughs> I was going to say, you're an author. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Not a published one. You're still an author. So there we go. That's what everyone was up to in England until Henry hanged the ball. Wow. I'm I'm just surprised that some people got through that and stayed on the payroll. Like, you would think you couldn't trust any of them. You could not trust them. No. And it's not surprising that Henry became so paranoid. Because no kidding. He really couldn't trust anybody. No. And if they were stupid enough to think an ointment would work on the door, you never knew what they were going to try next. <laughs> no. You couldn't defend no. against anything. <laughs> And on top of having people possibly siding with Flanders, we've then got, as you told us about, people being, what, what would the word be, befriended by Empson Dudley. Yes. Around the king. Yes. So, I mean, did he did he have a special friend? Oh, gosh. I don't suppose he had many, because he, he couldn't just, he wouldn't know what anybody was thinking. No. I wouldn't want to be king. No. There's a story... Golden Bough, I think it is. And if I get this, let's see if I can get this right. There's, the idea is that there's a king and he lives under a tree and he's king because he killed the last king. Okay. And he spends all his time standing under this tree and he can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't do anything because he's looking out for the next person because the only person who could become king is the person who kills this king. Right. So his life is miserable. He's always looking out for this next king. And then the next king comes along and kills him. And then that king can't go do anything because he's looking out for the next king. Yeah. And I get the feeling that that's what kingship is like in England at this time. Yeah. And certainly for Henry VII. It was definitely not pleasant. No. That's why it's such a surprise that his son was so vastly different. It'd be interesting to look at Henry VIII through Henry VII. Yeah. That is the end of our episode on the conspiracy to kill Henry. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Should Be Isabella. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on Meantime, machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. The man that hath no music in himself 
nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Goodbye. Goodbye.